broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Good morning, guys, and happy Friday. And it's always a happy Friday because we're at the end of the week, and that means yes. wine time. Um, I don't know about <laughs> you guys, but for me, it has been struggle town this week. I think uh, this pandemic is certainly hitting us all, and uh, I'm ready to get out of it. How are you feeling? Just a few hours to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I might even crack one early. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think yeah. it's called for this week. Yes, for sure. Uh, yeah, things are things are a struggle. Uh, just the the regular roller coaster. Um, I thought my depression this week was uh, as a result of a certain football match on the weekend, uh, what happened which, there, Louis? which which shall remain nameless. Are you okay? Uh, are you okay? Oh, <laughs> am I okay? Thanks, Joel. <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the concern over my mental health. Yeah. Um, some uh, some football team with 20 players on the field tried to um, take on a football player with 18 players on the field. Oh, come on now. Here we go. That, that out-of-bounds intentional, that was rubbish. Uh, minor minor impact on the ground, on the game overall. What had happened in the first quarter? Yeah, it directly led to the to Mason Cox's first goal. Anyway, Fantastic. let's not bring it up again. <laughs> I actually did, Louis. Stop. I tried to stop him tormenting you, but we're at the supermarket and he saw the yeah. "Are you okay?" sign and just couldn't help himself. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he allowed twenty four hours to pass, and uh, I was still breathing at the time, but uh, but that's okay. All except for the one earlier this year where we lost by eleven goals. Yeah, well, that was a dud. Uh, I thought that was a cracker too. <laughs> no one expected the outcome that we got no that's right so look it has been a huge week for news and uh i mean some of the things that have happened since our last podcast episode um uh, one of the biggest things has to be um that a fly landed on the head of the vice president's um that, that did make well the news. vice presidential uh, debate uh, i think that, I think Trump recovering from coronavirus so quickly has got to be the biggest story, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I liked actually seeing his tan, him without the tan, and then the tan again, saying that that was quite, is naturally that colour. Yeah, yeah. His makeup artist should be shot. <laughs> I'm starting That's... to find this whole election fascinating. Yeah, it is, it is. And uh, I'm, I'm curious as for whether he ever had coronavirus. If he uh, if he demanded to see Barack Obama's birth certificate, then I'm going to demand to see his uh, his positive COVID test. Ooh. Wow! Yeah. Oh, there must be an election around the corner, is there? <laughs> there must be. But anyway, anyway, that wasn't the big news of the week. The really big news of the week came out on Tuesday with the sad news of the passing of Eddie Van Halen. R.I.P. Eddie Van Halen, one of the best guitar shredders of all time um, and uh, lead guitarist for uh, a band that gave us some amazing rock anthems. 
Mm. Absolutely. So yeah. true. Yes. But then but, in other uh, news, Louis. Oh, who cares? Come on, let's talk about the next topic, and that's your topic for today, and that is oh, the federal budget. Yeah, that's uh, that was some minor news on Tuesday as well. <laughs> yeah, yep. And, well, can you uh, tell us about it? All right, all right. Federal budget. So lots of things in this federal budget, and different budgets every year have uh, different focuses. And this year what we didn't see a huge amount of was uh, was measures around personal finance and we didn't see a huge amount of things that had a direct impact on the personal finance of a huge amount of the population the one is the tax cuts uh, which are really just bringing forward what was already in legislation to happen in a few years time uh, so that's the one thing that's going to hit people's pockets uh, directly but apart from that there's, there's nothing really, uh, certainly not the raft of changes that we've seen in past years for super contributions or, or tax or big shifts in the world of, of personal finance. Um, what, what is expected is uh, this tax year, a lot of people will be paying less tax. Uh, so anyone whose income is over $45,000 is going to be saving some extra tax this year <clears throat> although um, uh, next tax year that's just going to be uh, taken away again because um, just quietly the low and middle income tax offset uh, is only going to be around for one more year uh, which uh, which is and, and then withdrawn next year and that's going to have um, the opposite effects of the tax cut that kicks in for the people. Um, so anyone with an income of between that $48,000 to $90,000, uh, yeah, you get extra this year, but then next year it's taken away again. Mm. Um, there is more impact for people with an income uh, uh, from 90,000 to 120,000, and then uh, anyone above 120,000 uh, is gonna be saving some extra money in tax, uh, and that will be a permanent shift. Um, and that'll uh, so so this year people are going to be saving. If your income's over one hundred twenty thousand, you're going to be saving about two and a half thousand dollars in tax, mm -hmm. um, of which uh, one thousand three hundred and fifty uh, will be locked in for future years as well. Right. So that that there you go. There's a there's a holiday to get the tourism industry back up and running. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So the bigger theme is really how do we um, how do we get things to happen in the broader economy uh, and there's no secret that it's about jobs. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, open, open the borders, up. let us in. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so the, the, the big ones there is helping businesses to employ uh, and helping businesses to spend. Yeah. The tax cuts might help consumers to spend, but there's, um, th there's arguments that if you're going to get consumers to spend, well, then there's maybe better ways to do it than, uh, than tax savings. Um, there's also a few uh, handouts for, um, for pension uh, recipients, so a couple of extra Centrelink payments coming through, um, but that's nothing major. So really it's the JobMaker scheme that's going to be the, the big one, as well as uh, allowing businesses to spend big money and get an immediate tax deduction on large capital purchases. Louis, I didn't. I didn't notice much about. There seemed to be a lot about um, 
giving existing businesses, you know, deductions and giving, you know, people uh, tax cuts. But I didn't see a lot in regards to incentivizing new businesses getting started. Um, did, did, was there anything in there that jumped out that might have been some form of an incentive for, for new entrepreneurs to, to, to be able to take advantage of any new, new business startup programs or anything like that? Um, the... I, I, didn't, I didn't notice much in there, but maybe, maybe there was and I missed it. I don't think there's much, if anything. There might there might be a small point in the detail there, which uh, which is there. But the challenge for a startup business is that they haven't yet paid any tax. So yeah. So so. Oh. so that, I was more wondering whether or not there might be some form of tax deferral or some sort of, you know, business business startup program where there might be some form of grant or something like that or or cheap financing, but yeah, maybe not. No, there's there's nothing to that effect. So again, if you're a if you're a startup business, um, you you still got to start up with your own capital unless you're going to qualify for one of those existing grants, like one of those existing. Uh, innovation grants uh, or, or have something that's pretty heavy in uh, in research and development, yeah. uh, in which case you can uh, get subsidies and, and that sort of thing, but they're already existing yeah. Um, yeah. rather than anything new in this budget. Um, so some of the things that this budget plays around with is uh, where there's been um, taxable income for a business and then taxable losses. Uh, and there's a bit more that businesses can do to shift between the years. Uh, and, and specifically in this environment, there's a lot of businesses that are going to end up with a loss in the 2020 tax year who had a profit in the 2019 tax year. And what's been announced is the ability to flip that around. Usually if you have a profit in the first year, then you have to pay your tax, even though you, ne you know the next year is going to be a loss. Um, but they're going to allow that to be flipped around and they're going to allow the 2020 loss to actually offset the profit of the 2019 tax year, um, which is something that's never happened before. You've never been able to allow a future year's loss to offset a past year's profit. Um, it's always had to be a past year's loss, which is then carried forward to offset a future year's profit. And is that that's, that's just a one-year... Um a one-year enabler, is it? That, that's not going to be permanent? Um, not announced as to whether it's going to be permanent as yet. Uh, so probably need that to be confirmed in uh, in future budgets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of detail that comes through, and the actual, uh, the actual budget paper, if you get it, is uh, it runs into uh, hundreds of pages of detail, uh, and then, of course, all the measures need to be uh, need to be passed. Yeah. Um, but the big uh, the big job uh, job boosting arrangement is this JobKeeper wage subsidy, uh, and that's where if you're going to employ someone be between the age of 16 and 29, uh, a business can get up to uh, 10,000 bucks, $200 per week, uh, going towards a person's wage. Um, if that person is coming off of a uh, of, of one of a number of Centrelink benefits, so that's certainly something that's going to reduce the cost of employing a new employee, yeah. um, and uh, and go a long way towards getting people off of that welfare payment and into employment 
and encourages yeah. encouraging businesses to do that. Yeah. So uh, there, there's a bit more around it, and you, if you've read anything in the news, then you would uh, you would have heard uh, that that's targeted at people who are under 30. Uh, there's still a $100 per week payment for people aged 30 to 34, uh, and there's some criticism around uh, the fact that it doesn't apply to people who are aged 35 and older. Mm. Right. Okay. Um, does it matter? I, I don't know. I, I guess my purpose today isn't to comment on it, just to inform that it's there. Um, and uh, I, I do think it'll be uh, something of pretty big impact. Louis, there was some also some um, heated debates going on in the media um, with some women claiming that the budget um, doesn't really support women. Um, and, you know, the, the budget had only allocated sort of 240 million or one third of 1% of the whole budget to supporting uh, women in the workforce. What do you think of that? Uh, I think the um, I, I think the argument against that those things and and the arguments to say um, that uh, for for people saying that that's inaccurate, I think are blind to the overall issues that women face. Uh, yep. With the uh, uh, so it's it's not a budget that's for or against women specifically, but it completely ignores the issues of a part-time workforce or uh, a, a workforce that needs to take career breaks um, or a workforce that needs to be in support of children um, uh, or um, people working towards retirement that uh, that have lower super balances because of time out of the workforce. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with that. It's, it, it's, a, it's a budget which is um, not actively against women, but it's certainly blinds to the issues. Mm. I'm going to throw it over to Joel because he often always has a different opinion. So I wanted to know <laughs> what your thoughts are on it. Well, I, I'm not certain that now's the time to really be trying to be equalising all of these things. I mean, there was plenty of money there for for uh, childcare, there was also plenty of money there to support women who are small businesses, of which women are 35 or 30 percent of of the uh, of, of business small business owners. Um, I think uh, okay, maybe there could be an argument that more needed to be done, but at the same time, I don't think women missed out entirely either. I think uh, this was more uh, a budget that was trying to get people back to work, um, uh, and and if you were a woman. Then you know you got the same sort of access to tax breaks as what men did, um, but it didn't target you specifically. And I guess that you know men tend to make up much more of the business ownership just in relation to you know those people who actually own businesses. So um, and, and men also benefit from, but so do women from the money that was uh, put towards childcare as well. So. Ah, uh, look, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's 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 a little bit semantics at this point in time. Maybe in future years there could be more to be done, but I think there's bigger bigger priorities in the very short term. Just trying to get this economy back on track. It's certainly not a year to be um, uh, the singling out, is it? Um, it's a, to be splitting hairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in in times of economic crisis. The levers you pull, um, and we've talked about this before, the, the stimulus measures, um, they need to be big and they need to be fast, 
which means you can't use a you can't use a knife's edge to to carve in and carve out where it's going to go and and what it's going to do. Mm. Uh, it's it's just got to be big. It's got to be blunt. And the the honest reality is, um, they've just spent a, an absolute massive amounts of money on stimulus. Yeah. So it's absolutely a stimulus budget, and that's just going to feed through for for all. Um, if there's one area I think it's maybe a missed opportunity that that might come back um, if this, uh, assuming the coronavirus situation continues uh, through the majority of next year, which is what seems to be um, the, uh, the the default scenario, it's uh, it's looking at the um, uh, not so much uh, women being carers, but the overall carer role. Um, I think there's a, a missed opportunity for putting more things into supporting uh, parents in general uh, and, uh, and and considering workplace flexibility or, or things like that. Mm. There's a uh, there's an interesting um, I guess there's an interesting observation that that we don't know exactly how it's going to pan out in the future. But obviously, much of our economic pain today is the result of uh, government enforced economic shutdown of the economy um, and and but I just wonder whether or not we would go to the same extent if it was an economic led uh, recession rather than a pandemic led recession um, and then we, we start to wonder and then I start to wonder about well you know at what cost do we allow or do we try to stop the economic cycle in future years because by far we have not seen, but by far, this has been the biggest, largest, most coordinated um, uh, worldwide government response um, mm. to an economic shutdown that we've ever seen on record by magnitudes of probably four to five times uh, when looking at it from a you know proportion of GDP. Um, I just wonder, you know, is there now an expectation among society? Uh, that if we go into an ordinary recession, which is economic-led or market-led, um, uh, you know, will will there be an expectation amongst society and, and politically will there be an expectation that governments take the same sort of response as what we've seen here today? Because while we're in shutdown, for all intents and purposes, you know, we if we didn't have this economic response from governments worldwide, and yes, it was created by them in the first place from the decisions that they made, but we'd be looking at 20% unemployment rates. Uh, we're only looking at, you know, 7.5% unemployment rates in most areas around the world right now, 8%, maybe 8.5%. But, but does this create a problem politically for governments in the future where, you know, it's not a pandemic-led recession, it's a typical, you know, market-led recession where people have borrowed too much and the economy's got too hot and then interest rates rise to respond to that. You know, are we now setting ourselves up in the future for governments feeling as though they're going to be pressured to continue to come up with the same sort of magnitude of response for every recession that we have? Because it's not affordable if in seven to ten years' time we go into another recession and we have this same economic response. Yeah. Well, it's an if If a government is expected to do it and they don't, Politically, it sounds like it'll turn political because they'll need to win votes and they'll probably have pressure on them to do so. Correct. So yeah. what do you do? Just keep plunging yourself into debt every time? I mean, what's what's the answer? I mean, it, Joel's got a point. If this, this happens again, we can't afford it. <laughs> uh, it it's a really interesting thought, uh, but I'd, 
I'm, I'm not sure of the magnitude. Yes, if this happens again, it's it would be a huge amount of money to spend again. But mm. I think the magnitude of this, as as compared to past economic events, uh, the the scale of of this is a much bigger economic impact yeah. that's trying to be cushioned from. So you, we wouldn't be hypothesising about this happening again. We're, we're hypothesising against a, a future recession happening, which is not a, a, a reduction in GDP of, you know, 6% or 10% or in some economies around the world of 20%. Yeah. You know, standard uh, recession is is two consecutive quarters of a negative amount, yeah. which is maybe, you know, 0.2% or, or half a percent. Um, so, you know, half to 1% combined. And in fact, a 1% reduction in GDP, correct me if I'm wrong, Joel, but I think that would be a pretty severe recession. Typically, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. One, one, a 1 to 3% recession. In fact, I can't remember exactly what the negative decline was during the GFC in the United States. But from from recollection, I don't think it was much more than about 35 to 4%. But, uh, but I could be wrong there. I could be wrong. Yeah. I, I would suspect that in hindsight of any past recession, I would suspect policymakers would probably think if we knew it was going to be a recession of that magnitude, and same for reserve banks, if they knew it was going to be that set of data that came out, mm. then they would have taken more preventative action. Um, my theory of, of your situation, Joel, is that policymakers already do try and at least cushion recessions, uh, if not avoid them completely. It's just that they don't have all the information up front. The, the unique thing about the, um, the, the financial situation at the moment is that way back in March, it was immediately apparent that it was going to be a huge economic impact. And yeah. you just don't get that kind of advanced notice with your typical economic recessions. No. Uh, no. So, so they had an early indication that they just had to stimulate, uh, whereas typically you see the stimulus package coming out maybe six months later um, or whenever the next uh, federal budget is, which you know might be up to 12 months later. And I'm, again, I'm just trying to cast my mind back to the, um, uh, to the GFC. Um, and it, I, I don't think it was until sort of 2009 that that the the spending programs really got underway. Um, no, you're right, Louis. Because uh, the, the policymakers didn't realise what they were going to unleash when they let Lehman Brothers fail, and uh, and yeah. so we were we were already the US was already in a recession by December of 2007, um, but uh, it didn't actually really speed up and become dire until uh, Lehman Brothers uh, failed and then the consequences of that uh, systemic shock was uh, mm. actually realised. Yeah, yeah. So so it's more sort of the, in your typical economic uh, decline, it's a bit more like a boiling frog uh, with the water just warming up gradually and gradually and, mm. and people, are, uh, politicians and reserve banks are probably arguing um is it actually hotter in here? And some are arguing, no, it's not actually hotter. Yeah. And someone else is saying, oh, I think it's getting a little warm. And then by the time the water's boiling, uh, then people are uh, in agreement to take action. 
Yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, whereas here we've gone straight from uh, from, from nothing to uh, to suddenly boiling water, and everyone's yeah. in immediate agreement. Yeah. Yep. So, any closing remarks, though, on what you think about the federal budget? Um, look, there's uh, it, there's some also some uh, some good small ideas. So there is a bit of um, uh, business as usual um, amongst it, and uh, not everything's been ignored. Uh, like uh, the the concept of super fund stapling. Um, at the moment, when a person starts a new job, a lot of the time a new superannuation account is being established by accident or by default. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas this uh, this new rule of super fund stapling is going to avoid a lot of duplicating of superannuation accounts. So that's good. Um, uh, but people probably haven't read about that much in the press because it's not a headline-grabbing thing. Uh, another thing is that granny flat arrangements are now exempt from capital gains tax where it's a written agreement between family members. Uh, and that's a huge issue for a very small number of people. Uh, but it often impacts people with elderly parents who move into a, a, a granny flat of their children's home or, or build a granny flat of their children's home. Uh, and it's uh, a, a major problem for them, uh, and now it's got a solution. So that's nice. That's good. Yeah. So so there's a bit of a combination of the big economic things being done, uh, but also some, some minor problems which are fixed up in every federal budget. Uh, continuing to get fixed up uh, with these ones as well. Right. Uh, so, look, there's a lot that I haven't covered. Uh, I guess that's a, a a broad, blunt overview from my point of view. Yeah, good one. Well, thanks, Louis. Look, what we're going to do is take a short break, but we're going to come back and sort of continue continue with the federal budget conversation and how it's going to affect the property market. We'll be back after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. Okay, welcome back, guys. Now, uh, Brett, you're going to continue the conversation. Tell us what this all means for the property market. Well, the the budget always includes some component that that has a, a direct impact on the property market. This year, it's not so significant as compared to previous years with the majority of the benefit or the impact likely to be indirectly through a lot of the things that, that Louis already touched on with just the economic stimulus and, and the driver to create jobs. That's probably going to be the biggest factor that will continue to support the property market. Obviously, people need to, to be employed and, and have money to be able to buy property and, and keep the property prices in check. Uh, the major thing that the government did announce, though, was the extension of the first home loan deposit scheme. So this is really to support twofold, probably the those looking to enter the market, but also to try and help construction, because the majority of people entering in the market are going to be buying new homes on the back of the price points and also the other first homeowners grants that are still around. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyone looking to enter the market, if they're savvy enough, they can use a combination of things now to get the best bang for buck. 
um, the first home loan deposit scheme. So it's a government initiative to support eligible first home buyers, which is different to the first homeowners grant. What the scheme is, is it's, it's for those buyers that don't have yet saved up enough to, to be able to buy a home with the 20% deposit that the banks would certainly requ normally require. Uh, so typically, if you if you get a loan that's more than 80% of the value of the property, the bank would ask that you get lender's mortgage insurance. So what the government are doing in this instance is they're allowing people to get loans with as little as a 5% deposit and being the guarantor for those loans to the bank so that the, the actual purchaser doesn't have to have the burden or the cost of that lender's mortgage insurance. So helping them to get into the market with a lot lower deposit. Okay. So it was already in existence um, prior to the budget. Uh, so they had 20,000 spots available for it. They've increased that by another 10,000. But at the same time, they've also dramatically increased the cap on pricing. And I was surprised how much this has actually grown. So the scheme prior to the budget had a cap on the, the price point that it could apply to in sort well, so it was different per state and per city. Mm -hmm. uh, Sydney, always being the most expensive market, had a, had a threshold at seven hundred thousand, which is now increased to nine hundred and fifty. Wow! And there's a panel of twenty seven lenders that are that are all approved and and participating. Uh, in Victoria, it's gone from six hundred thousand to eight hundred and fifty. So every every state has seen it go from. Um, it's different in the capital cities, as we said, for. For New South Wales, they talk about it being the capital cities and regional centres. The regional centres are anywhere that has a population of 250,000 or more. If you're outside those areas, though, the cap is a fair bit lower. It's it's down at around. So for New South Wales, it drops from that 950 we spoke about down to 600,000. But still pretty generous. I mean, I can't think of too many regional centres where you could no. buy a pretty great home for $600,000. What, what about, um, Brett, do you think that's a little bit of a risk in um, our major metro cities, though, increasing that, uh, just with jobs, you know, not being in that state of the pandemic? Well, I don't see it as a risk because people don't necessarily have to go to that level. Mm. I guess all it's doing is it, it's probably opening the door for some people to buy homes that they, you know, they were probably wanting but not in a position to. It, I think the major thing it's going to do is maybe bring in some existing property to be part of this to help stimulate existing residential sales. Yeah. Uh, the expectation is when the price points are lower that they're they're looking at brand new house and land packages or apartments. Yeah. Whereas well, with the pricing going up, it would allow some of these first home buyers to buy existing property. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading so an article actually in Queensland that was saying that um, the areas of sort of Burley um, have a lot of. Um, uh, first home buyers getting into that sort of area and that price point, um, and that that's really sort of a boom centre for um, a, a across sort of the Gold Coast and, and Queensland itself. That homeowners are, are, are sort of going there in in sort of droves to get their first home uh, purchase there. Look, it makes sense. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure why Burley's the the one part of the Gold Coast. I mean, Gold Coast is quite expansive; like it's mm. a fairly broad area and you've got a lot of beachside areas and a lot of inland spaces with with a lot of house and land projects around mm. so i think it's sort I'm of a cool sure. area for the younger younger peeps so yeah that's understandable better cafes i think in Berlin. Cafe. <laughs> uh, well it's not just the younger peeps i know a particular restaurant that's quite popular with some of the older demographic as well <laughs> are you saying i'm old <laughs> no not, not necessarily referring to you oh good it's her is it 
Well, she's one that's not coming back from Queensland anytime soon. I'm sure she's frequented that place quite regularly. Absolutely. She's referring to. And good on her. <laughs> she's eating the bug rolls for us, Brett. World famous. Oh, I'm jealous. Definitely <laughs> jealous. Um, the other thing I'll add on to um, to where I think this has been quite well considered is where we're actually starting to hit a bit of a sweet spot for first home buyers. Uh, we're sort of in a demographic sweet spot due to the millennial generation now hitting that age bracket, which is the majority of the, uh, the the age demographic where people are considering to buy their first home, sort of in that 27 to 37 age bracket. So with a, a great number of those millennials reaching that age, they will be looking to buy their first home. So this is a good incentive to, to give them the opportunity to get on the market. Mm -hmm. uh, if you combine it as well, so there's the other two major incentives that can help first home buyers. Um, the first home super saver scheme is still in place where they can be contributing to super to allow them to try and save their deposit using the, the tax benefits of super and, and using, uh, you know, some of their, what, what are they, Lou, where you, you get a um, part of your wage put into your super. Yeah, correct, right. salary sacrifice. Salary sacrifice, and that was the yep. word I was looking for. Yeah, so they can salary sacrifice to have a bit more discipline about that. Um, and the first homeowner's grant, which is probably a little bit different because the thresholds are lower, but you can still get grants of ten to $20,000 around the country. Each state's got slightly different rules and eligibility, but that's still available. So for someone that wants to get on the market, uh, they could use a combination of the super saver scheme, uh, take advantage of this current home loan deposit scheme and get the first homeowner's grant. You can combine all three. There's, there's nothing saying you can only be eligible for one. Yeah. You know, with that super scheme, so how does it work? I mean, obviously it's salary sacrifice and then how do you just tip the money out at the end? How does it work? Uh, I, I you can know, Louis? that question. Yeah, yes. sure. Yep. Uh, so what gets flagged by your super fund is how much of your com uh, super contribution is the employer's required contribution. Okay. And your super fund records how much of the contribution is in excess of your employer's minimum required contribution. Okay. And uh, and what you do when you want to get the money out of super, you need to fill in an application form to the ATO, mm -hmm. and the ATO will then approve the release of a certain amount of your super yeah. um, to go towards the purchase. And then you send that letter to your super fund at the time that you're trying to settle on your property, and your right. super fund will release it. Uh, as as part of the uh, as part of the settlement of your of your home. And is there any kind of cap on how much you can actually save for a, for a property, or you can just keep saving for years? Um, I would need to come back to you with the detail because uh, there's been a few different versions of the scheme. Um, yep. So don't quote me on it, but All I right. think something we can to... pick up next week because I'd just be curious myself to know, you know, just for, for for listeners out there, if you are trying to save. Yeah. I mean, how much can you actually do it? I think that's a great um, opportunity to actually take it out yeah. of your super. But um, how much is the question, I guess? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, you only need 5%. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, you only need a 5% deposit. <laughs> well, it depends yeah. on how you want and to do it. The, the, um, the, I guess the disincentive is that once it goes into super, you have to get it uh, out of super only for that property purchase. And if mm -hmm. someone decides not to or they decide it's going to take longer than they originally thought, then there is a risk that the money gets stuck inside the super environment yeah. um, until your retirement. And that turns some people off, but if it works, well, then it works really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
a lose in the in the in the short term, but really a gain long term anyway. If you've got it got it in your super account. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sorry, Brett. Back to you too. What else can you tell us? Oh, look, not a whole lot more, Steph. Um, as I mentioned about the um, the demographics with the millennials reaching that sweet spot, one of the other bits of data here, over the past 10 years, first-home buyers have, have been on average around 23% uh, of the financing that's been provided for owner-occupier purchases of housing. Currently, though, that's climbed to around 30%, which is probably a combination of, of these incentives, obviously the demand of those millennials, but also the drop of, of investors and new new migrants coming too. So I think it's a pretty well considered scheme to, to be hitting the time hitting the market right now. Can can I uh, can we just try and settle something here? What what is a, the definition of a millennial? I, I I've heard definitions where it starts at 1980, 1981, 85, 1990. Um, you know, and and I'm trying to figure it out because I for years thought that I was a Gen Y. And, uh, you know, I was, I was under the understanding that I was Gen Y being born 1981. But then I'm, I'm hearing now that I'm Gen X, if you ask some people, and then I'm Gen, I'm, I'm a millennial if I'm, if I, you know, if you ask other people. And, and I believe that millennial is just another word for Gen Y. But uh, uh, can, we, can we get some sort of general consensus on what the definition is? Well, I'm just reading on uh, Google. It says anyone born between 1981 and 1996 ages 23 to 38 in 2019 is considered a millennial. Okay. So what's our source of truth? Is it Google? Do we, do we go to Wikipedia? <laughs> and then anyone who is, is oh, oh, after just... that is Gen Z, is that right? So 1997. Right. Yeah, I think millennials is an interchangeable word with Gen Y. Yeah, it is. It is. Which I think yeah. purely because of the turn of the century. Correct. Yeah. 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 But in terms of the dates, it, it seems to be contentious, depending on who you ask. Well, I don't think you are a millennial. Yeah, born between 1981. Oh, yeah, 81, yeah. Yeah. So the definition on Wikipedia is the early 80s. So I guess 81 is the early 80s, Joel. We'll, we'll let you... Well, it depends. Which one do you want to be in, Joel? <laughs> well, well I was you're right, you're right on the cusp. Gen y. I was quite happy being Gen Y. Because then he could bag again. out the millennials and say, oh, they don't but know I, how to work. I, so. I know you are now, but you, I'll, you work. I'll let you into the Gen Y category, Joel. I associate with that. <laughs> No, I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be associated with those stodgy Gen Xs. They, they, <laughs> they were. They were sort of like the nothing generation. They were. They were, you know, they were like the. They were like the afterthought of of. Uh, of the know, baby boomers. Baby boomers. So you're okay to be a millennial. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sorry, Brett. <laughs> Just offended him. <laughs> All right. Well, look, we're going to have to uh, make a move. We're going to close this topic down and we'll come back after another short break, guys. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 
8657-7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Okay, welcome back. Our last topic for the day, uh, we're going to throw over to Joel. Now, you're going to talk to us about a brand new revolutionary source of energy. I am, Steph. Uh, I Look, I'll be honest with you, I'm no expert in this subject matter, but uh, in the last couple of weeks, there's been a number of announcements coming out of uh, some significant research centres uh, that fusion energy, fusion power, is actually now taking a material step uh, towards becoming a reality. Now, fusion is different to fission reaction, where the fission is the splitting of an atom. Fusion, from what I understand, is more around the um, around the combining of atoms together um, to form a heavier nucleus. So Wikipedia defines fusion power as a proposed form of power generation that would generate electricity by using heat from nuclear fusion react reactions. In a fusion process, two lighter atomic nuclei combine to form a heavier nuclei while releasing energy. So this is uh, so the reaction part is more around uh, the atoms coming together, uh, whereas in fission it's all around splitting the atom. Now the problem with fission reaction is that it, it, it can be it can yes it can release huge amounts of power, but it also creates a, a number of um, you know, issues in regards to the ability to control that power uh, if it gets out of control. Um, it can also be used in, uh, in arms um, that can be destructive. Uh, it also has a lot of radioactive waste that uh, can last for, you know, many, many, many thousands of years, I think even millions of years before it completely decomposes. Fusion reaction, however, is supposed to be the, the light moving forward in that it doesn't have the same nuclear fallout um, uh, under the combining of these two uh, under the combining of, of these two uh, atoms or nuclei um, the, uh, the the I guess the atomic waste that comes out uh, decomposes within generally around about a hundred years it's uh, not nowhere near as harmful in terms of its radioactivity in fact it's generally considered relatively safe um, and uh, and it's about four times more powerful in theory in theory than a typical fission reaction. Is it still um, using uranium? No, it doesn't use uranium. No, it uses uh, well. There's two different types of uh, ways in which fission is being explored right now. One is through the use of hydrogen. Uh, well, one is through the use of hydrogen and borium, uh, and the other is through the use of uh, uh, extracts or um, uh, what do we call them, uh, I guess, um, particles that are part of hydrogen, uh, usually usually using um, isotopes or such as deuterium or tri tritium. Look, I'm no expert in this stuff. Uh, Louis, both, like, uh, yeah, can yeah I can. If I hark back to a uh, year 10 uh, science project I did, um, those isotopes you're talking about are, um, are, are water. Yeah. Yes. So, so it actually takes water, um, puts it through a process, not a filtration process, but a um, something to, uh, to to create different isotopes of water, and then it uses those isotopes. Uh, so basically, you've got these hydrogen atoms that come out of water uh, that feed your uh, your your fusion reaction. Uh, yep. So you've got water going in, 
and you've got it going into this uh, crazy fusion environment, uh, producing more energy, uh, and then you've got very little byproduct coming out of it. If water's going into it, well, then you've got water and energy coming out of it, uh, and it's uh, it's it's very clean. Okay. Well, well, in a yeah. I was just going to say it sounds it sounds great. I'd, I'd like to know what countries are, are working on it, and um, you know, do you really think that this is the next big thing, or is it too expensive? Well, look, is it likely I, I, to be in at use? This, well, at, at this point in time, it's not even uh, a reality. So that the problem has always been so far to date that it's always been theoretical. We've not yet been able to have uh, produce more energy from the fusion reaction uh, than the energy required to get it to, to actually work. Mm. So. Um, the problem with the, uh, well, the, the issue has been that it requires a huge amount of, um, of uh, heat to get these two particles to mesh together to create the plasma that creates the fusion reaction. Okay. Uh, and that has been beyond the realms of what we've been able to achieve so far to get that reaction generating more energy than what it's taken to actually get the energy to actually um, become reality. Mm. But but uh, research from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology um, have actually, uh, through a number of research papers, uh, on the 29th of September, just this, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, have actually come out and now said that they've they believe that uh, this fusion reaction to produce positive energy uh, will actually be possible, and they and they're commencing work now on this new fusion reactor that they believe will be up and running within about four years. And okay. if everything goes well, they're, they're of the belief that we could see the first formal commercial uh, fusion reactors being put into, um, into, into work sometime in the next 10 years. Mm. And their belief is that in the back half of this century, so you know from 2050 onwards, that we'll actually start to see the rollout of fusion reactors. Now, if that happens, this could be huge economically uh, because the cost of energy will just plummet but it's also going to be huge from an a, an environmental perspective as well because you don't have the nuclear fallout issues you don't have the uh, radioactive waste issues you don't have the carbon emission that comes from this form of energy yeah uh, and it's uh, you know at least four times more powerful than the uh, than the current form of fission reaction the there has also been an Australian company or an Australian researchers and an Australian company are also leading the charge. And the problem so far to date with these fusion reactions is that huge amount of energy that's required to actually create the heat. Now, with this new boron hydrogen reactor that researchers here in Australia from the University of New South Wales, they believe they've come up with a way to actually sidestep the, uh, the, the heat requirement to get this typical um, fusion reaction taking place by firing two different lasers uh, from one side uh, to the other to get hydrogen and boron fusing together uh, to create uh, the energy that um, that would would uh, the energy reaction or the, mm -hmm. the um, fusion reaction. Uh, and so uh, we actually have. Uh, two very unique uh, approaches to this. Uh, Australia is leading one approach and the United States and Europe are leading another approach. Uh, but it feels like things are really starting to ramp up and uh, and the research that is going into this new form of energy, if it comes off, and look, you know, it's always sort of been, fusion has always been that, you know, being 20 years away from being just 20 years away, but it feels as though it is now just 20 years away mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, from being a potential reality. And um, 60 years? 
<laughs> and 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 it really, you know, you you start to, you know, think about and if you let your mind sort of, ex, you know, sort of wonder, you know, where this could take us, um, you know, we, we've got the 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 you know advent of Tesla and electric cars. Um, we've got all of a sudden, you know, we've got uh, faster ways to to move uh, people around the world and and much more energy. We've got uh, much cleaner form of environmental um, uh, impact in terms of energy production, but also the possibilities of where this could take us in terms of mankind, you know, into other areas around the, the solar system that we haven't been able to reach before. Yeah. Um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, that mankind could take a huge giant leap forward uh, should this uh, new source of energy become a commercial reality in the back half of this century. Mm. So is this something that people can actually invest in now or is this just something to really watch? It's, it's nothing that is investable at this point in time unless you are, you know, really interested in uh, becoming a, a, you know, a very uh, early, what, what's the, it's not even venture capital, it's, it's angel, uh, investor. angel investing. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, in fact, I believe uh, the Wall, second Wall Street movie was uh, based around fusion reaction, uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, the big deal at the end of the movie, yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, was about... I know fusion. what we're going to be watching on uh, tonight <laughs> on TV. <laughs> um, so, so, look, I just found this was a fascinating new development and um, given the way that the world seems to be moving, the demand for electrification... And cleaner energy. And cleaner yeah. energy. And, you know, even if you don't believe in, in global warming, you still uh, understand... M many of the people who don't believe in global warming still understand that you don't want to have dirty skies and pollution in the air mm. and poor air quality and all of those types of things. So, um, you know, this could just be a huge leap forward for mankind. And, yep. and the new business opportunities and the new industries that this could create and pot potentially also the ramifications for geopolitical um, uh, relations between various you know, parts of the world where, you know, previously, you know, Saudi Arabia and the Middle East were, you know, largely powerful because of their huge resources in in oil and natural gas. Mm -hmm. And same with the United... Well, we've already seen that the United States now has, you know, dramatically more power and clout because they've got their own huge reserves of natural gas and, and oil they've been able to tap as a result of fracking. You know, if all of a sudden fusion now democratizes energy across the world and you no longer have to you no longer have control of the resources well what does that do for all of the geopolitical argy-bargy that mm. that is going on in the world right now the yeah. big game changer that comes from that is when you when you think of uh, cheap energy being able to be used to produce clean water because one of the big arguments against something like desalination is about the amount of energy that you need to use to turn salt water into uh, drinking water. So if you can get power on a cheap basis uh, from a, a game-changing technology like this, uh, then suddenly you can have uh, huge swathes of irrigation off the back of it. Mm. Yeah. So you can turn land that is currently unusable land um, in uh, in parts of Australia where we go through big periods of drought. Imagine if there was no drought anymore in Australia as far as farming was concerned uh, yeah. because you could just uh, pipe water uh, from the ocean uh, that was cleaned up with uh, with cheap desalination, cheap desalination. Um, and uh, and have that uh, go towards your, your farming. 
Um, yeah. So that would revolutionise Australia, Absolutely. but more than Australia, um, yeah. think of all your parts of Africa uh, that go through, that have much more um, arid conditions than us. Mm. Um, yeah, but it also makes parts of Australia more inhabitable, you know, if we could actually pump that water and, and, and have more uh, to, to take out into sort of desert areas. Yeah, and, that's right. Yeah, which makes better change, conditions. Which changes your whole uh, population dynamics. If that's you can suddenly right. have populations living in the middle of Australia, mm. uh, you could have a, a new capital city pop up. Yep. Um, in uh, in the middle of the Northern Territory. For sure. Maybe that's a little bit far-fetched, but... Uh, oh, you never know. You never know. About 20 years away. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and again, more than Australia, you think of Africa and the amounts, uh, the, the, the volume of, of land in Africa uh, where people are struggling to live, yeah. um, and you've also got billions of people that are already there Suddenly, having access to clean water and uh, and good food and nutrition, uh, you're going to have an absolute revolution. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, and only 20 years away, it'd probably beat the train to Melbourne Airport. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be powered by fusion technology. Oh, it probably huh? will be. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, look, we're going to have to leave it there, but we're going to throw to our last topic for the day, and that's you can't be serious. Brett, I'm going to pick on you. What have you got for us to say? Uh, well, look, sometimes you've got to feel for, for a lot of the military and, and armed services when they get lonely and they, they come back and they, they, uh, they're looking for, for some attention. And one particular guy uh, wasn't having a lot of success with the ladies, so he decided to go down the paid route um, and having found someone to come and visit him, he was, uh, he was rather shocked to find it was his best friend's mother. Oh, what? That's awful. <laughs> wow. But he continued to, to do the business and, and keep it a secret. Well, <laughs> obviously she was milk. <laughs> Louis, what can you give us this morning? Yeah, I came across one, and uh, it just so happens to tie into uh, to, to Joel's topic for today. Um, the, the Guinness Book of World Records has um, uh, given an honour to the to the youngest person ever to generate nuclear fusion. And the thing that Joel's talking about is achieving nuclear fusion on a, on a commercial scale where you can actually generate power for, for cities and countries off of it. Um, but uh, this boy has actually been able to replicate nuclear fusion at a very small scale, but he's done it in his own bedroom uh, at just the age of 12. He did wow. it right before his 13th birthday. So there you go. Maybe by the time he's uh, 33 years old, we'll have commercial fusion power. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, Joel, do you have one? I think Louis did seal your uh, your one. <laughs> oh, did I? Oh. He's having a bit of a chuckle and going, no. <laughs> but I, I think he's got another one. Well, uh, look, I... I I was thinking back to a, uh, believe it or not, I'm actually going back to the gym this, these days, but it's all outdoor training. But on the way down to the gym, I was listening to Triple M, and Triple M had this uh, conversation. What are some of the uh, the most disgusting things you've seen in a hard rubbish uh, uh, collection? collection yeah. So you know how people are putting hard rubbish out the front of their places? Well, uh, And people go through it and want to actually take these these items, so, yeah. you know, bike parts um, and everything else. And and we, were just sort of we were just discussing that uh, one person called up and suggested that uh, there was some mattresses out the front of a brothel. 
Oh, oh no thanks. <laughs> Apparently they didn't look too nice either. <laughs> oh, jeez. I don't think that's something you'd want to pick up. No, no. <laughs> definitely not. No, you might be picking up something extra with that one. I, I, th I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to have to leave it there for today, but have a fabulous weekend. I know we're still doing blockies at the moment. Hopefully we get some good news that uh, this uh, five-kilometre rule is lifted at some point. But uh, if it's not, enjoy your weekend, and we'll do it again next week. Thanks, listeners, and thank you, team. And enjoy sending your kids thank to you. school on Monday. Yes. yes. Have a good yeah. one. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye.